Hi, this is Marlene, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found on MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Go to MarlenePardo.com for information on new book releases. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and can also be listened to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests on the show. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit Strange Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com or find us on Blogspot. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. In the pantheon of monsters, vampires and werewolves are two of the best known. However, when it comes to hunting them, werewolves are much harder to find, making them perhaps more dangerous. They can blend into humanity and are not restricted to moving about after nightfall. More importantly, they are not dead. Outside of the time when they are in the power of the full moon, they can live among other human beings. The bane of vampires such as sunlight, mirrors, and crucifixes have no effect on werewolves. Some could even hide in plain sight as a member of clergy. Remember the movie based on Stephen King's novelette, Silver Bullet? In 1935, Werewolf of London, a horror story, was released by Universal Pictures as Hollywood's first mainstream werewolf movie. Jack Pierce, who did the makeup for the film, would go on to use his technique six years later on Lon Chaney Jr. In this film, the monster's only weakness is a rare plant from Tibet. In the story, Dr. Yogami, played by Warner Olan, warns the main character, the werewolf seeks to kill that which it loves best. It was the 1941 film, The Wolfman starring Lon Chaney Jr., where once again a good man is cursed by an encounter with a werewolf. However, even when he's transformed, he's still mostly human. He can only be killed with silver and at the hands of someone who loves him. In this film, many of the modern precepts concerning werewolves were created. The main ones are, you become one after being attacked by a werewolf. At the next full moon, you are cursed to become a werewolf. As part of the transformation, you forgo all compassion towards other persons. You lose the power of speech. And if you're killed as a werewolf, you return to your normal appearance when you die. The werewolf's weaknesses are wolfbane, garlic, and silver, which was the only way to kill one. Even the old gypsy woman's poem, even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night, may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright, was made up for the film by the writers. The 1961 film The Curse of the Werewolf tells the story of an orphan boy in 18th century Spain. Born on December 25th, Christmas Day, to a young mother, he is a product of a rape. The child is raised by a wealthy man. However, the man the boy becomes cannot escape his fate. 
Despite being raised by a loving family and finding true love as an adult, the power of the curse cannot be overturned. He cannot fail to obey the command of his nature. And as a werewolf, he is everything that as a man is contrary to his nature. He seeks to kill for the sake of bloodlust. Only death can stop him. This movie introduces the idea that romantic love might overcome the urge to kill. However, when the moon is full and bright, there is no love that can stop the curse. In the 1980s film, An American Werewolf in London, one of the most riveting parts is the full transformation of a man into a werewolf. In this film, again, there is the hope that love will save the day, but it is not to be. These men become things that were more than wolves, but with a bloodlust that dwarfed those of regular animals. But in truth, stories of humans that transform into wolves have been around much longer. Over 100,000 years ago, mankind feared wolves, but also admired them. They had stamina, hunted in packs, and in a brutal prehistoric world, they survived. Hundreds of years passed, and as man became civilized, these early lessons learned by observing the wolf were forgotten, and their traits became only things to be feared. Any human trying to imitate one was thought to be savage and antisocial. However, there were those who did not want to lose this connection and used incantations and spells to transform humans into something that was more than a wolf. In the ancient world, it was said that sorcerers had the power to shapeshift and become a werewolf by using either a magic belt or a salve they would apply all over their bodies. In some cases, they actually drank a potion, foreshadowing the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Wearing a wolf pelt and chanting certain words was part of the magic formula. Others hunted a wolf, would kill it, eat the organs, especially the brain, sleep in its lair as a way of acquiring the animal's power. All instances, though, regardless of the source, saw these individuals as evil and the pawn of the devil. In 40 BC, Demarcus, an Olympic boxer from Arcadia, was said to have spent his youth as a roaming werewolf. The Arcadians believed their first king, Lycon, sacrificed his youngest son at a feast honoring the god Zeus. The god was so disgusted with the king's actions that he turned him into a wolf and struck down his remaining sons with a bolt of lightning. The Arcadians then started a yearly sacrifice on Mount Lycon translates to Wolf Mountain to commemorate the sacrifice made to Zeus. A young male would be killed and his flesh would be mingled with entrails from a wolf. This offering would be made to the god Lycos Zeus. Any man who ate of the flesh would become a wolf for nine years. If during this time he did not eat human flesh, on the 10th anniversary he would become a man once more. However, if he became weak, and he ate human flesh, then he would remain a werewolf forever. In 175 AD, the historian Pausinius claimed to have met the Lycaean werewolves when visiting Arcadia. In 435, St. Patrick cursed a tribe of pagans who resisted conversion to Christianity and mocked him. The curse involved a transformation to werewolves either for seven years or every other seven years. 
for the rest of their lives. St. Christopher, who is known as the patron saint of travelers, was a pagan before he became a Christian. He came from a land called Marmorite, which in Greek translates as the land of dog-headed people. Byzantine icons of the saint depict him with a dog's head since he was believed to be a Cenophilus. In the 12th century, Gerald of Wales records a monk's encounter while traveling through Ossory. This is the passage. One night, he's approached by an exceedingly polite wolf who, to the monk's horror, starts to speak to him and begs him to give the last rites to his dying companion. After the wolf has proved himself to be a very Catholic wolf, the monk follows the human beast to the side of a dying she-wolf. To banish the monk's last trace of doubt and fear, the wolf unzips the she-wolf's skin, revealing an old woman. According to the wolf, a curse had been laid on their people by St. Natalus that a pair, a man and a woman, will be randomly chosen to become wolves. If they can survive seven years, they will be restored to human form, while another pair take their place. The curse is meant to be passed on through generations. But for what reasons? The wolf does not tell. Between 1764 to 1767, dozens of victims were injured and killed in the province of Gavaldon in southern France. Their throats would be torn out and many of them were partly eaten. The animal became known as the Beast of Gavaldon. It was described that the monster's first victim was Jean Boulet, a 14-year-old girl watching her sheep. Her death was followed by others, almost exclusively women and children. Throughout 1764, the brutal attacks, victims with their throats torn out or heads not off, riveted France. The violence was so shocking, news of it traveled from the countryside all the way to the royal palace in Versailles. A movie was made only a few years ago, Brotherhood of the Wolf, which depicts exactly this scenario. In a world where most were illiterate, the power to read secret texts and conjure a wolf being was both feared and therefore targeted the person for persecution. In exchange for the risk, the magician was granted the power to transform into a wolf larger than a normal one and with glowing red eyes. However, there were those who became wolves involuntarily. They were cursed by a sorcerer or a priest or by someone they had wronged. Being born on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day was viewed as an act of blasphemy so close to the birth of Christ, which condemned the person to become a werewolf unless they led a pious life free from any sin. Forced to become savage beasts when under the sway of a full moon, people who were werewolves suffered remorse for their deeds when they became human once again, and some even sought ways to commit suicide before they killed other innocents. By the 10th century, the Catholic Church declared that any who believed in witchcraft or sorcery and the power to transform into a wolf were heretics. The ability to transform into another species meant you were in league with the devil. In 1233, the Inquisition was established by the church. In 1407, witchcraft trials held in Basel, Germany, burned numerous werewolves at the stake. 
A council was held there between 1431 to 1449, where clerics convened to discuss the idea of witchcraft, not only sorcery, but the worship of demons. In 1521, three persons were burned at the stake in Poligny, France. It claimed that they devoured children and killed animals when they became werewolves. These so-called werewolves claimed this was done at the behest of a dark lord. The 16th century has many stories of werewolves who were executed for being in league with the devil. There was Gilles Garnet, Peter Stubb, and in 1598 a tailor known as the Werewolf of Chalon and the Gandilon family all met their end when found guilty of being shapeshifters. Reading about these cases that occurred hundreds of years ago, it's easy to see the connection between them and modern-day sexual sadists who walk the streets. Jeffrey Dahmer and Richard Ramirez are only two serial killers who were born during those times, would no doubt have been hunted as werewolves. The moon from ancient times was associated with the underworld, and it was under the cover of night when demons worked their evil. Witches and shapeshifters would use the phases of the moon to transform their shape. When confronting a werewolf, the safest time would be when they were human, so there were clues that should be looked at to identify them. Since the times of the belief in werewolves, there were signs to give away their true nature. Eyebrows that meet in the middle, a scar in the shape of a pentagram, often found on the hand or chest, an index finger longer than the middle finger, love of raw meat, eyes that glimmer in the dark, aversion to iron, steel, and silver were all indications this person would transform when the moon became full. In modern times, mental health professionals have found patients that believe they are werewolves. Some become better with treatment and prescription drugs. There's a list of beliefs that drives their behavior and convictions that they are lycanthropes. They are, one, they physically transform into wolves and therefore growl and howl like an animal. Two, they crawl on all fours. Three, a desire to kill humans. Four, they are driven to have sex often and without discrimination, including bestiality. Five, a desire to prowl cemeteries and woods at nightfall. Six, shunning contact with human beings. Seven, the belief that they are the playthings of the devil, which is why they become werewolves and ultimately the ingestion of drugs that allow their transformation into an animal. So, are werewolves only products of diseased brains that urge a human being to slash, kill, and mutilate in order to satisfy their animalistic urges? Or are there those who become something more than a wolf when the moon is full and the shadows lengthen? Perhaps we will never have an answer to that question, but here are a few stories that might convince you that it's not just all in your head. Story number one. The woods in this region carry on and on for miles. They are deep and rich and thick and unyielding and are bound up at their easternmost border only by rivers and riverlands and at their westernmost by the foothills of mountains and to their north and south by more of the same. At one point, the forest parts around a hilltop, 
clearing that bears a merchant's town called Moon River at its crest. But that place was still a good ways east of us when Francis Pappen leaned out from the warmth of his carriage and said to me on my horse, It's well past us now, Farron. What say we stop for the night? Tired after a day of sitting, are you, I said back, without so much as looking at the man. Wouldn't think you'd want your precious furs to spoil before we got to town. Furs won't spoil. Not like it's any business of yours, mercenary. Your business is doing what I say. And I say we find a cabin and wait out. Then my business is escorting you to town in one piece. Is it not? Now I did look at him. And he said nothing. So I continued. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm in charge until we get there. Is that a damn fact? Maybe I'll decide not to pay you a thing, mercenary. There isn't a man in Moon River who wouldn't believe that you and your gang of highwaymen tried to rob blind a humble merchant in the woods. Well, you do know what they say about these woods. He blinked. I hired you for a reason. What of it? Well, say I slit your throat right here on this spot and have Hollis over there do the same to your driver. You think those men in Moon River wouldn't believe that something other than myself was responsible for the crime? He said not a word more, so again I continued. And perhaps, after we're done with you, we'll just sell all your furs for ourselves when we reach town. I think we'd fetch a mighty profit. What say you, Hollis? Hollis rode his horse round the foot of the carriage, and I did driver with a nasty stare before circling around to my side. I'd say, we'd make more in that endeavor than this one. You hear that, Pappin, I said? We'd make more in that endeavor than this one. The merchant said only, bastards, the pair of you, and slammed shut the carriage window, then Hollis leaned in. Fat merchant's right prick, isn't he? Has been since we took this damn job. We rode in silence for a moment, but then Hollis leaned in again and said, quieter this time. He's right, though, you know. About what? We shouldn't be out here at night, especially not on these roads. Things are already eyeing us from the thicket. I know. That's why I didn't want to stop. Moon River can't be more than two or three hours off. Well, give it another half hour on the mark, and the sun will be down. Then it won't matter how fast we're moving. Those things will be faster. Again, there was a briefness without talking, but I knew he was right, and soon enough we saw an appropriate place to stay, a small cabin in a clearing, not much bigger than itself, and I pointed it out to Pappin's driver. It took the merchant himself not more than a minute to feel the turn. I see you too have some sense in these things, he said through the open window. Watch it, Lord. We're not making a stop on your account. He ignored the comment and leaned far enough out to see the cabin itself. Wait. Is that where we'll be staying for the night? That cabin? It is. It's a damn shanty. What the hell do you take me for, some right-eating peasant? No, I take you for a man. I'll either sleep in a perfectly well-built house for a night or out in the grass. I rode to the front of the company before he had a chance to respond, and while Hollis guarded the carriage, I rode a quick lap around the place and found it suitable. 
Then I dismounted and I tied my horse to the sill post and brought up a pistol and approached the door and knocked once, twice, three times. Rap, rap, rap. Anyone inside, I said. We're tired travelers. We seek only a place to sleep for the night. There was no answer. So I pushed open the door and let the moonlight hit the place from the opening. There was a scarcity of it, but I could see well enough to determine the cabin's emptiness. And once I did, I waved in Hollis, who in turn waved in the carriage, which approached slowly. It came to a full rest, a few feet in front of the door. And when it did, the driver dismounted and opened the door for Pappen. Hollis brought in the muskets, and the driver brought in the merchant's storage, and the merchant himself brought only wine. Once he made it inside, he took a seat on the only chair in the room. I struck a match for light. So, what do you fix me for supper, mercenary? I wasn't aware I was being paid to cook. I leaned my musket up against the door. Well, surely you can't expect me to starve. Not our fault. You brought nothing but your wine, said Hollis. He bit into a serving of salted meat, as if to taunt the man. And it's not my fault. I wasn't informed a meal wouldn't be provided on the journey. You men can hunt, can you not? We can, but in these woods after sundown, it'll be us that's hunted, not the other way around. Pappen was unimpressed. Oh, come now. Trained killers such as yourselves? Step softly. Make not a lot of noise. And whatever foul things there are out there, if any, surely won't take notice of you. And you don't think a musket shot would alert whatever foul things there are out here to our presence? Hollis chewed as he spoke. Well, then use the same damn musket to shoot the thing. Hollis and I traded glances, and then we looked back to Pappen. Do you not know what lies out here, merchant, I said? Highwaymen and brigands, what of it? I can't imagine you'll have stopped here for the night if you expected an ambush. Highwaymen and brigands, said Hollis. Is that all you've heard of? Let me tell you something, Lord Pappen. They don't call this place the Bandage Grover, Highwayman's Forest. Do you know what they do call it? Pappen shook his head. They call it the Witch's Wood. And do you know why it bears such a name? Another head shake. No. Because not far off from this very spot, Hollis continued, backing Pappen up against the wall, you'll find forest clearance lined with dead things in the trees. Raccoons, foxes, squirrels, all tied up with twine to the trunk and rotten to the bone. But not just them. You'll see horses, too, taken from the carriages of stupid, fat merchants who travel alone in the woods to save a penny on the ferry. Ah, uh, and, and what, are the, um, what are the merchants themselves? Any tales on what happens to them? Oh, yes, I joined in now. You see, my lord, you can't satiate the devil's bloodlust with a beast now, can you? He shook his head. I suppose not. That's right, I continued. You'll need a man for that. But sadly, there isn't one alive today who knows just what it is the wood witches and their man wolves do to their captives here. And why is that, Hollis? Because those captives never make it home to tell the tale, Farron. All we know is that deep out in the thicket there, our heads on spikes and hanging corpses, a warning, as it were, to trespassers and to haughty fools. 
Papin did his unworthy best to look unafraid. And then folks up in the Moon River, I continued, they say that every night under a full moon, you'll see flickers of firelight in the trees, and along with it you'll hear strange chanting coming out from the depths of the wood. Ch- chanting? Oh yes, Hollis said. Wood women dancing wickedly around the fire under the full moon, dressed in rags and tatters and fur, setting ancient words to ancient tunes that summon up old devils. So says the folks in Moon River, anyway. Pappen wiped a bead of sweat from his forehead and planted his back to the southern wall. And what's that got to do with, you know, with captured travelers? Well, again, I said, we don't know. Nobody's ever seen the coven's supper up close. I made it back to speak of it. But those same folk in Moon River, they say that on those full moon eves, three hours past midnight, when the chanting and the roar of the flame hit their peak, and all the evil of the wood is whipped up in unholy fury, you can hear something else in the midst of it. Pap and gulp, something else? And what would that be? Screaming. Holland screamed, lunged forward, and when he did, Pappen shrieked and backed into the chair and over it and fell to his ass. Hollis and I shared a laugh, and even the driver, after he recovered from his shock, tried to hide a smile before going back to the task of organizing the luggage. That wasn't funny, Pappen said. He rose again with an effort and dusted off his waistcoat. That wasn't funny at all. Now I demand to know what's to be done about my supper. Learn to have a laugh at your own expense, Lord, I said. There's a deer out there at the far edge of the clearing. Hollis, you mind staying here while I kill the thing? Just be quick about it. I grabbed my knife and my musket for good measure and turned back once I'd reached the door. Driver, I said. The boy, about 18, if I had to guess, looked up from his task. Sir, what's your name, lad? Uh, Moses, sir. Jed Moses. That's a shit name, son. She'd be ashamed. Anyway, come along with me. I'll need your help carrying back that deer. The boy looked excitedly at Pappen, who rolled his eyes in a yes, and then he bounded on after me, and together we stepped out into the cold and the dark of the night in Witch's Wood. The deer grazed lazily on the other side of the road, not yet having seen us. Are you going to shoot it, Sir Farron? whispered Moses. First of all, boy, I'm not a knight. So drop the sir. Second of all, no. I want to make as little noise as possible. So if we're lucky, we can sneak around the damn thing and take it from the rear. Only brought the gun in case of an emergency. I handed it to him, and he cradled it like a jewel, and then I unsheathed my hunting knife. Together we moved to the tall grass in the left, where the deer couldn't see, and I rolled my foot around from heel to toe to muffle the sound of my booted footfalls in the grass and dirt. Come on, then. Easy does it. But without reason or warning, and not more than a second before I was about to lunge for this animal's throat, the deer finished its meal and bounded off down the hill into the thicket. Damn it! I peered after it. It wasn't sprinting, really. Just softly running and not much faster than I could move. I said back to Moses, Come on, lad. Let's get after the damn thing. So in we went behind it, through underbrush and shrubbery and under branches and over logs and rocks and stone. The deer somehow, having not yet seen the pair of us, plodded lazy along and sacrificed its lead by doing so. 
40 feet, 30, 20, 5. I could nearly taste the venison, and when we weren't more than a leap away, I drew my knife and made ready for killing lunch, but then the deer took a pivot on its front and vanished behind a wall of grass. Faster, boy, with me! Moses and I followed it, but then we stopped. Moses whispered, Where did it go? To no kid. I said back, Damn thing was right here. Couldn't have gotten far. Keep your eyes sharp. I kept moving, rolling my step, peering into the underbrush for signs of movement or for hoof prints or the smell of fur, but Moses hadn't yet begun to follow. What's wrong, lad? You coming? But he said nothing in response. Steady stood tall and straight, and he trembled, and he sweat, and he quivered his lip, and he stretched out his arm and pointed at something behind me. I turned to look. What is it? What? And then I stopped, too. The deer was standing there, staring out at the pair of us from a ways out in the thicket and showing no signs of worry. But no longer was it the beautiful buck we chased. Instead, it was diseased and rotting alive and sickly thin. Quite a hideous sight to behold indeed, but it was what stood next to the thing that frightened us most. It was a woman I saw once she stepped into a moonbeam. She was old and thin, and her hair was gray and matted, and it fell in clumps to her shoulders and stood out from her head. She smiled a toothless grin and then cackled demonically. Moses, I said, without looking away from the witch, hand me the musket, lad, do it now. He did, and I shouldered the thing, although neither the witch nor the deer seemed to mind the gesture. She only grinned, so I breathed deep and moved my finger over to the trigger of the gun and crack. We whirled around. What was that? Another musket shot, I said, from the cabin. We traded only the briefest of glances, and then we turned to look at the witch. I felt an unwelcome chill. Where did she go, Moses said. I don't know, lad, but I ain't going to go searching for the girl. Come on with me. And with him at my heels, we tore back up the ways we came, over rock and stone under branches that whipped and through creeks that soaked through the leather of our boots. We climbed and set our boots to the mud, and soon we stumbled back into the old beaten road that split the field. Oh, God, I slapped my hand over Moses' mouth and wrestled the boy to the ground before he broke off in a sprint towards the wreckage ahead. Keep silent, lad. We might not be alone in this place. Only slowly did I let him back to his feet, and I readied up my musket. We moved through the grass the way we'd come, to our right now past the sacked carriage on its old splintered wheel and the dead horse attached to it. The poor beast harness had been split by a laceration that gutted its midsection and spilled its guts to the mud. Already it stunk of rot, and similar fates had befallen the two other horses near the door. I stepped over them carefully. Hollis, I whispered once when I stepped in past the threshold. Hollis, you in here? I smelled gun smoke in the cabin and something worse, like a wet dog. But I saw and heard not a thing and then I didn't dare light another match. Hollis, I whispered again. Hollis, and then we heard a rustling in the corner. I shouldered up my musket and whispered, declare yourself. With my head signaled for Moses to flank, and he scuffled his way to the opposite corner and sat down in the shadows. Then we saw a movement from the offending corner and the throwing loose of a quilt. 
It's it's me, Pappen said. Don't shoot, please. God, don't. Sh We're not going to shoot you, Pappen. Just tell us what happened. Where's Hollis? The merchant gradually, and with the hands still raised high, revealed himself and sat up. Those things took him, he said. They stormed right in and... Wait, wait, what things? Those wood witches and... And he trailed off. And what? Ta towering things, black things. Wolf beasts, they were snarling. Wild dogmen at the witch's command. They had the wild devil in them, Farron. I swear they did. Hollis shot his musket at one and didn't so much as scratch its fur. And where were you in all this? He didn't answer, but the moonlight Moses and I caught each other's glare, and then I turned back to Pappen. I asked you a question, merchant. I held my musket at the hip. He stammered only, I I'm sorry, I truly am. What? Sorry for what? They said they spare me if I led you here. And all at once, I heard the damn witch's cackle from behind, and it was followed by footsteps and by breathing, heavy labored breathing, and that smell of a wet dog, as pungent as ever. Moses fell to his ass and scampered to the far wall, unable to scream, and Pappen merely repeated, I'm sorry, over and over again. They said they let me live. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Miserable fucking coward, I mumbled. And then I whirled around with a musket and fired. I'm walking in the woods, not gracefully, but in dull, pounding, uneven footsteps, as if I suffer from a limped gait. My head hurts. My sides hurt. Breathing itself hurts, too. I swallow in the air in heavy but shallow breaths, and it is not enough. I smell terrible things, a rotting, wet dog and blood, and I see terrible things. The trees here are filled with mutilated creatures, and I hear terrible things, too. There is a cackling, wicked laugh. I turn to look and see a hideous, old, frail beast of a woman. Her hair is gray and unkempt, and her face is filled with age, and her mouth is toothless and cracked and rotten. The witch laughs again and says something in a language I can neither understand nor identify. But the words are coarse and rough and mocking, and when I hear them, my vision swims and it tunnels and it darkens, and then, and then I am seated at a table. It is made of a deep wood and has no food or wine on its surface, but only a candle which provides just enough light to throw back the infinite darkness that surrounds it. There are others here too, and they, like me, are seated around this table, unmoving and with their hands turned palm up and placed on the wood in front of them. At the far end of the table is a standing figure, a man in a black coat, wearing a mask, the severed head of a ram. He carries a black book in his hand, and as he reads its contents, I can hear a chorus coming up from the nothingness. It is all at once slow and faint and beautiful and dark and wicked and ancient and ethereal in nature. I can make out the words. Ostrum viernos, ostrum mius, ostrum mortum, ostrum northos, sung in endless repetition, and although I know not their meaning, it does not matter. The words course through me and take me, and as I listen, all my fears and all my pleasure and all my thoughts melt away. I feel not a thing, 
no joy and no peace, no fear and no anguish, no sadness and no sorrow. I simply am. The goat man stares at me, somehow. I know this through his mask. And then there is a rumbling like thunder, and then... And then I am no longer in that room, at the table. I am somewhere else now. The great hall of a mighty palace, it seems. No. As I look around it, and all the pillars and all the jewels, I see it is not just a palace, but a temple, too. And I stand at the center of it, and to my left and to my right are endless hosts of wicked things, singing that chorus, Astrum Viernos, Astrum Mus, Astrum Mortum, Astrum Northos. Over and over again, and in this place, the song is louder and clearer and more beautiful than they were in the black room. And instead of the goat man, there's something else on the mighty seat ahead of us. And above me, it's a snarling mighty beast upon the throne. And its left hand, it carries the black book. And its right, that is set up on his lap, it holds the world. I approach it in a passive awe. And when I stand at the foot of the stairs beneath the beast, it opens up its mouth and then... And then I am back in the woods. I feel as I've been here forever, now. I can remember nothing, but I care little because I also feel nothing. No emotions, no pain, no memory. I simply move forward, ever forward, through the grass and the dirt and past towering wolf beasts and other old women dancing and singing ancient chants. Above me, the night sky is split and broken, and at its center swirls a vast red maelstrom of cloud through which unholy hosts come to dine on what will be offered. And ahead of me at the center of these proceedings, there is a mighty pyre set to burn. The women take me and place me upon the stakes next to three other men. One of them appeared in a similar state of bliss to myself, and another cries for mercy. For what reason, I cannot fathom. And the other, a boy of 18 perhaps, has his eyes shut tight and whispers, Please, God, please save us. Please, Jesus. Instantly, I snap free of the trance, and the witch, approaching the pyre with a lit torch, fell back and dropped the thing to the grass. What in the hell? I looked up. The sky bore no swirling vortex to Hades, I saw, but stars instead, a glimmering multitude of them, and silver clouds hit back by moonlight. And then I looked out at the clearing. The coven of witches that had gathered, and all their forces of wolf beasts, had ceased their demonic chants. Now they scowled at the lot of us with fury and venom and a host of menace, and they began to approach. Hollis, I said to my friend, who stood on the pyre beside me. He turned. Hell, boy, what happened to you? Did these, did these women do that? Never mind the black eye. We need to move. We're tied. We're not. Those witches ain't roped us up in the woods. He looked down. He moved his hands and he moved his feet. Well, I'll be damned, he said. And we leapt down together from the stake. He kicked the fallen witch in the jaw and grabbed the torch she'd lost. I myself ran around the pyre and collected the other men in our company. Let's go, old man. I grabbed Pappin by the shoulder cloth of his coat. I can nearly see Moon River from here. He slid sloppily off the pyre and tumbled to the grass. And I moved to Moses while he regained his footing. Come on, boy, I said, and don't stop your praying. He, too, leapt off the pyre when he realized we were free, and then our company took off with all haste towards Moon River with a wicked host at our back. Move, lads, 
Move with all you've gotten you. We fled across the clearing, through grass with its blades to our hips, and then we tore into the forest and half leapt, half ran down the sloping mud-soaked hill of it. Over logs we went and over rocks, too, and stones, and we ducked under whipping branches and splashed through swamp water bogs. And behind us, never more than a few leaps away, thundered a storm of our hunters. They screamed and shouted and howled and ran, often on all fours and with demonic speed. And soon enough, they weren't only behind us or close behind us. No sooner I saw things in the trees besides us, more wood folk who joined the chase. These were wolfmen too, bounding in lockstep in the shadows of the deep, and the forest shuddered with their footfalls, and the devil's red of their eyes carried with an unspeakable malice. Don't stop now. Don't slow your flight. Don't slow the snap. I turned to look just in time to see Francis Pappen trip over his own twisted ankle and tumbled hard over the offending branch. He hit the dirt with his face and had only just lifted his eyes back up to the trail when a werewolf fell onto his back, followed by another and behind them a host of wood witches. His screams were shrill, but I turned the fear to force and pumped my legs next to Hollis and just behind Moses. On and on we ran, across another shallow clearing and a stone dammed broken over an old fence that we mounted at its lowest reachable point. I turned to Hollis. He appeared sick and set to burst from the effort of flight, and I said, We're near the town now, friend. Stay with me. And he nodded, but said not a word. Behind us and gaining rapidly, we heard and felt the approach of a monstrous wolf beast. I doubled my efforts, and Moses his, and Hollis his, for what he could muster, and yet despite it all, I didn't think we were fast enough. Please, Jesus, I heard Moses say under his breath, send help. And then, just as we began to stumble from exhaustion, the trees began to thin, they began to shorten, and then they broke in their entirety and we found ourselves trailing our hunters in an open field hit by the end of a moonbeam. The grass fell to dirt and the dirt swept onto a road, and the road, after only the briefest passage, led us into the outskirts of the sprawling town of Moon River. The three of us waved our arms and screamed our warning to the townsfolk. Help us, Moses shouted. Help us, please. And all at once, the window lanterns of the town turned on, one after another, and residents threw themselves out at the waist and raised up the alarm at our plight, which now was theirs. The coven is upon us, we heard, and the wolves on with them. And then, with the shouts, came the crack of musketry from the window facing west, or that came in turn a howling shout from the coven. And now raced across the field, not in pursuit of us alone, but of the town they had now engaged in their fit of madness. And that now rose up to meet them with all its bullets and all its blades and all its strength of heart. We broke into the town proper, not a minute later, and we did so amongst a fit of chaos that was making its way down to the streets to fight. I could hear the shouted voices in the house and shops lining the streets and the brandishing of leather and metal. There would be a fight tonight, but behind us I also heard the snarl of the damn wolf beast and his thunderous rolling gallop of a gate, and then I felt its breath on my neck, and the foul stench of it filled my nostrils. Please, God, Moses said, having felt the same thing, one more. And at that moment, a man above shouted, Here, man, take it! And he threw down his woodman's axe from the window of the street. 
It buried its blade in the dirt, and I grabbed the thing by the handle as I ran by it and turned my momentum to a twisting leap and brought it down on the wolf's head with all my strength. The wolf beast howled, and for the quickest, briefest moment, I thought I dealt the thing at least a wounding blow. But I wasn't quite so lucky. It then stood on its hind legs and bellowed out a roar, and then it swept me to the bricks with its paw. Instantly, the wind was knocked out from my lungs, and I fell. Farron, Moses shouted from much too far away. The wolf leapt up, and in that moment, time itself seemed to slow, but it never made it to the ground. In a flash of metal and flash, a horse hit the beast at its full gallop, and together they tumbled away from me, neighing and roaring, and with a horse's rider trying fruitlessly to unsheath his blade before the weight of the beast fell on top of him. But then came another horse and another, and after a charge of fifteen such riders, that damn wolf stayed dead. Those riders then broke out onto the field to engage the coven. Farron Moses pulled me to my feet. Are you hurt, sir? I'm fine. But we can't stay here, Hollis. We've got to. But I stopped when I saw my friend. He laid himself out on the cobblestones with his face to the air and his arms stretched out to his left hand and to his right, and he struggled mightily to breathe. Moses fled to his side while I limped behind. Hollis, Moses said. Another pair of riders thundered past us and missed Hollis' boots by a half inch. Moses turned to me. He's collapsed from exhaustion, sir. What do we do? That's no exhaustion, son. It's something worse. Hollis' skin, I noted, had turned a sickly color. Common bastard must have done something to him before we ran. Come on with me. Let's get him help. Moses nodded, and together, as a cacophony of battle fell around us, we hoisted my friend up to his feet and carried him down the street. Men-at-arms and militia ran on past us in the other direction. Help us, Moses shouted. Where's the surgeon? But in the din of chaos, not a man heard us, nor had time to answer. There were shouted orders and horseshoe clops on stone, and the ceaseless rustle of blades and metal as Moon River did its damnedest to muster up its defense. Come on, lad, I adjusted my grip. Come on, there's no help to be found here. And so we took him deeper and deeper, yet into town, past homes and inns and shops and merchant stalls, where Pappin would have sold his wares for a hefty price. But there were no doctors about, and Hollis, for his worth now, dragged his feet behind us and rolled his head with a stepping. We're losing him, sir. I know we're losing him, damn it. Don't you think I know that? And behind us, as always, we heard the snarl of wolves and the cackle of the demon witches as they bounded off walls and roofs and fell to the men below. Musket shots split the din in passing secession, and by their infrequency, it was apparent the men of Moon River were fighting a losing battle against a desperate, monstrous foe. We quickened up our pace. Moses managed to look over his and Hollis' shoulders. Why haven't they given up the chase? I don't know, kid. In there, come on. He turned to look in the direction I nodded my head in, a church with its priests on the stoop, blessing the regiments that flew on past to stop the horde. He said his prayers even as he was ignored, but he stopped when he saw us approach. Father, I said, laying Hollis on his back against the red brick of the church wall. Father, help us, please. And the priest looked us over and then turned to Hollis. He drew his lips into a thin line. What's happened to him? We were about to be sacrificed in the woods, Moses said, but we escaped and... 
You men escaped the coven's supper? Never mind that, man, I said. We ran from the beast and they followed us. But something's foul taken my friend. I nodded at Hollis, who coughed up a blackened fluid. His hands had begun to shake and seize. The priest began to bless Hollis with incantation, and Moses joined in short order. Please, Jesus, he said, please, God, help this man. Show me what to... And at that moment, something fell from Hollis's satchel and tumbled down to the steps of the church to the cobblestone below. A small host of hurried men nearly trampled it underfoot. What is that? It's the black book, I said. I saw it in my visions, some wicked tome. It is wielded by the coven to throw my spirit to a trance. I descended the stairs and moved to grab the thing. No, the priest shouted, don't touch that evil. But it was too late. My fingertips brushed the binding of the book and instantly I was thrown to the cobblestone and my head pounded and my vision swam and I could hear myself scream with terrible visions burrowed their way through my mind. I saw chanting, I saw dancing, I saw that black red vortex above the sky and the host of demons that flew on through it to steal and to kill and to destroy. Then I saw a man of staggering beauty, blonde and muscular, approach me with a stride and eyes and a smile that smacked of nauseating arrogance. He reached out his hand and, God help him, Moses said, and the priest grabbed my shoulders and nearly threw me onto the steps of the church. The visions ended instantly. Hurts like hell, doesn't it? I turned around. Hollis had propped himself up on the floor. Got tired of being carried, I said to him. Glad to have you back. The priest, followed by Moses, brought the book up to us by folding it in his robes. He then dropped the thing on the flat step in front of the church door and said, This wicked, monstrous thing, how did you come by it? I took it before we ran, Hollis said. Thought it pissed the bastards off. Looks like I was right about that. He nodded towards the far end of the market square, where we saw men running back the way they'd come towards us and without their muskets or blades. The line had broken at last, and now monstrous hosts followed them close behind. We must act quickly, said the priest. They've come for the book. Make no mistake about that. So what do you suggest, I said. We burn it. The square descended into madness. Wolf beasts tore the flesh of the men as they fled and devoured them whole, and witches, filled up to bursting with satanic strength, leapt down from the walls they'd climbed upon and tore the poor men down. The priest, for his credit, sent Moses into the sanctuary to fetch oil. I lit up a match upon his return, and we doused the black book and set it to the flame. Come on, you bastard, burn, burn, I said. The book at first smoke and then caught a slight spark in the midst of its canvas, and then it burst into a blue flame. Its edges began to roast. At the sight of it, the witches nearest the scene shrieked in panic and leapt up the stairs on all fours. Hollis knocked her back with a stone throw, but then another witch came in another, and behind them a wolf beast with ropes of spit at its snout. I began to retreat up the stairs along with the priest, and Hollis prepared to move into the church. Moses, already with his back to the wall of the structure, prayed another prayer. Jesus, he said, one last time, help us. And at that moment, the first of the morning sunbeams peeked over the rooftops behind us and poured out into the square. The stones flushed with red and then orange and then bright yellow, and in the light there was a roaring of agony from the coven. Their advance stopped like stone, and the witches fled without their power, and the wolf beasts shrank back into men 
and fell to the stones before scampering off towards the west. I looked at the source of the smoke. The black book was no more. For the next day, we helped the townsfolk clean up the mess of the slaughter. There were fewer men killed than we'd believed, which is a fortunate enough thing, and far more of the wolf men and the witches who, after having their devil's power bound, were hunted down and butchered in the streets and in the field and in the early depths of the wood. For some weeks, hunting parties were gathered up and dispatched to the clearings my company and I pointed out. The great pyre was destroyed and the dead things removed from the trees, and the heads on pikes lining those clearings were taken down and buried with honors. Gradually, Moon River fell back into its natural rhythm of commerce and bustle, and when it was done, the priest gave us a final blessing, and then Hollis and myself, with Moses at our side, rode south in search of new things to discover. Story number two. Somewhere close to the Georgia-Tennessee border is a parcel of land close to 70 acres in size. It's surprisingly well-known in the area because my grandfather built a sign in front of his and his wife's house calling it Wolf Grounds. And that part of the property is right next to a well-used highway between two well-populated cities. It might also be due in part to the fact that my grandfather was a pretty prominent member of both cities' communities. My parents' house was built at the other side of the farm, on a little side street that's out of the way. You would only see the turnoff if you knew it was there or you were just past it. There were several dirt roads between my parents' and my grandparents' home, and they also snaked around to different parts of the property. I keep calling it a farm because it is. My grandfather grew corn and sunflowers on it while my father grows corn and peas on it now. There are roughly 10 or 12 large patches of arable land on the farm which necessitated a tractor to plow and plant with. Yeah, I know how to drive a tractor and plant crops, but you wouldn't know that unless I told you. The country twang that permeates the southern United States never took residence in me. As a child, I would go across the field with both my father and my grandfather, riding in their trucks or on the tractor, back when I was small enough to be able to fit in the space between seat and cab, so I knew the land pretty well. Some of the few memories I have of that time were being out in the field with my grandfather while he humored my exploring. There were times, though, that I just walked to my grandparents' house. It was only a half mile or so along these paths, and it was a reasonable distance from the highway, so it was unlikely anyone would just be out there prowling around. I would be out there at the age of four, walking down through relative wilds to see my grandparents without a care in the world. Now, this farm was connected to two other farms on one end, and would have been connected to two others on the highway side had the highway not been constructed. That meant that it was nestled amid a large patch of farmland between the highway where it came through. As a child, riding in the truck or on the tractor, I could see the fencing that bordered our land and the next door overland. I never really noticed it any more than that, only that it was in our land and the guy next door had horses. Later on, though, I would find out what that fence was for. I was a child back then, so of course I saw everything from the perspective of a child. 
everything look much larger than it was, and my depth perception was off from reality because of it. So the farm always seemed a good three to four times bigger than it actually was. Like I said, I was used to walking along the path between my grandparents and my parents without a problem. So it's no surprise that I might be heading home in the evening after spending an afternoon with my grandparents learning how to read. Yeah, my grandmother taught me to read and write from the third grade textbook she taught out of when she was teaching elementary school. It was winter, so it was dusk around 5.30 p.m. when they sent me home, having called my mom to tell her to be watching for me and to have the lights on. It was a clear night. Otherwise, my grandfather probably would have driven me home. So I'm walking home as usual, bundled tight in a warm sweater and coat, making my way by starlight and the last rays of sunlight over the ridge. As I'm walking, I hear a rustling behind me, and I think it's just the wind brushing through the leaves around us. The farm has a lot of evergreen trees on the non-arable land. It's not uncommon, so I keep going, but it keeps following me, staying a steady distance away. I didn't know it at the time, but the thing was smart, timing its movement with winter winds before moving. It was steady in its movements, keeping an easy distance away the further I got from my grandfather's home. I could still feel the worn dirt path beneath my feet, telling me that I was still on my way home, but I was worried because of the rustling that seemed to follow me. I was about a third of a way down the path back home when all hell broke loose. The next time that the wind ran through the trees, the rustling didn't stop when the wind ended. It was pounding after me. It was the lope of something heavy on four legs, pounding the dirt path. I started running down the path, barely able to see in the growing darkness. And from a four-year-old's height, all I knew was that what was scared and that I wanted to be home. Still, my feet were guiding me along the well-beaten path towards home and safety. Some part of me knew I wasn't going to make it. There's only so much adrenaline that a four-year-old can make and only so much strength and stamina that can exist in that same body. I didn't know any of that. And even if I did, it wouldn't have stopped me running for my life. I managed to make it about halfway home before the pounding beats behind me were only a few paces away and my heart was racing far faster than I could ever run. A shot rang out behind me, and the sound of something heavy hit the ground behind me, and the pounding of work boots came up behind with a bright light. I turned around to find my grandfather there with an old military pistol from the Vietnam War and one of those long industrial torches about the size police officers used to carry around and used as an improvised billy club. Between the two of us was a large furry thing larger than I was, bulkier than anyone or anything I'd ever seen outside of an encyclopedia. I remember red eyes, sharp teeth, and long legs. My grandfather was in his 80s at the time, and I knew he always complained about his age, making cracks about how I'll have to deal with it when I get to be as old as him. Yet here he was, old eyes sharp as a hawk, and with hands that didn't twitch with age.
looking like a man half his age. I remember his no-nonsense voice telling me that, that we needed to go on home. Looking around me with the help of the light from his torch, I knew that this wasn't anywhere that I had been before. I didn't recognize anything around me, but there was a fence there made of old but solid wood. Your basic split rail fence except that the post had scratched in markings. I guess I had made a wrong turn and been chased out towards one of the edges of the land. My grandfather stooped down, handed me the torch, took my other hand, and he walked me the rest of the way back home. As we got to the top of the hill where my parents' house was, I could see the lights of the porch waiting me past the last stretch of dirt in the large front yard. My grandfather patted me on the back and told me to head on home after taking his torch back. I gave him a hug before I made my way towards the last stretch. As I reached the front yard, I looked back, but my grandfather was nowhere to be seen. This was 1995. By now, some of you who happen to have known my grandfather or my father have already guessed just who I am. Some of you might remember that I was a member of the Boy Scouts and that I was pretty goddamn good with a bow. So good that my father bought me a compound bow to practice when I was 14. By this point, my grandfather had passed away, leaving his part of the land split between me and my sister. He was 91. He spent the last four years of his life flitting in and out of reality because my grandmother passed at that time. He managed a year on his own before my father put him in a nursing home. My father was always dragging my sister and me out to see him whenever we were close, despite him barely being lucid anymore to recognize us. My father still tried to wring information out of my grandfather. Bank information, farm information, where certain farm equipment was, but there was always something that I never knew about. He would always stop asking about it whenever I came back from playing checkers or chess with some of the more lucid geriatrics. It seemed suspicious to me, but at that stage of my life, I was drugged almost completely out of my mind and didn't notice much at all. Not by my own will, mind you. Misdiagnosis of ADHD and overdosing meds will do that to you. At the age of 14, though, I was out in the field whenever I wanted to be, and that meant that I was usually taking out the compound bow and shooting it at a target, working on becoming more accurate than further away. It was a weekend, so I would be out well past dark. It wasn't as though I could drive yet. It was dusk again on winter break when I decided to head back home. I had been using the new arrows I'd gotten with my Christmas money that were hunting arrows, you know, razor sharp, designed to rip through organs. I gathered up my arrows and started heading home. The place I had set up was at the far end of the farm, past my grandfather's old house that was being rented by some of my father's friends who moved in shortly after. At this point, I was too drugged and too tired to remember what had happened when I was so young that I didn't recognize how similar the events were. Well, I didn't. My body did. I was on high alert, and this time, I wasn't four, and I had a bow and an arrow on me. Already, there was an arrow in my hand, and knocked as I walked, my eyes unfocused in a daze. I heard the rustling again, every time the wind blew. 
I picked up my pace, again trying to make it home, and again things went the same as before, only quicker. I didn't have the body of a four-year-old, so when I crossed that one-third mark, it broke cover and started chasing after me again. I was able to keep ahead of it longer this time, my foggy mind trying to work out survival. I had six arrows on hand, all of them sharp, and I knew that if I flagged, it would catch me. And I knew that as soon as I tried to climb the hill, it would catch me. My heart pounding, I raced forward, chancing a look behind me. There was an outline of heavy black that blotted out the light with the only thing daring to break it were slavering teeth and bright red eyes. This one was bigger than the first, bigger than I was at 14. I rounded a bend and readied my bow, turning and firing as soon as I saw the red eyes. I heard this awful rumbling howl as I turned and ran again. I didn't hear the pounding sound of feet hitting the ground until a few seconds after. That was all the time I needed. I made it up the hill and past the tree line to the front yard of my house with a pound behind me. Chancing a look back, I could see the shape at the edge of the trees glaring at me. It raised a paw, a hand, I'm not sure, and pressed it out, hitting something hard. I know I didn't see anything, but from the corner of my eye, I could see a shimmering along the tree line. Whatever it was, the thing couldn't pass it. In the starlight, I could see the orange arrow shaft sticking out of its shoulder. I raced back to the safety of my house, looking back again. When morning came, I went back out and took a little look around the forest edge. I found my arrow, snapped in half with the blood on the tip. It was a clean break, as though someone had applied equal pressure to both sides to snap it. I started to have foggy memories of that first time and went out past the tree line to try to find the place where I had first encountered one. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find it, despite following every single path out there. I didn't tell anyone about it, but I did notice that from that day forward, the same Vietnam War era pistol was always with my father when he went out into the field. He explained it as having found thieves in the field, and I bought that. Being as drugged up as I was, this was in 2005. Fast forward to yesterday. Yesterday I was contacted by the lawyer, a man who I'll withhold his name, who oversaw my grandfather's will and was its executor. He apologized for the lateness and told me to come by his office as soon as possible. Since I was already going out to shop, I swung by his office to see what was going on. It turns out that he had been taught by my grandfather in a lot of industrial skills, welding, machinery, all that sort of thing, which didn't surprise me since my grandfather had been in the Army Corps of Engineers back in World War II, or whatever that part of the Army was called at that time. The guy had been entrusted with a package to give to me when I turned 24, which was this year. He had changed his office twice since then and had gotten lost in the move, only having been found the day before. It was a small package, about the size of two packs of playing cards stacked on top of each other, and wrapped in brown paper with my name on it and rough twine over that. I opened it, and in it I found a ring. 
just a touch tarnished with age. It was old, and the lawyer immediately identified it as being silver, having just gotten his wife a silver tennis bracelet for their 10th anniversary. As I turned this ring over my hands, the two memories I had previously relayed to you became flooding back with the clarity that I presented here. Up until yesterday, I had never seen this ring before. I don't even know what the pattern is on it, but I get the distinct feeling it's Celtic. The best way I can describe it is that it's a seamless pattern of interlocking swirls that seem to have no way out. The swirls are large enough to have indents between the lines, and small barbs can be seen protruding into the space between. I have no clue what it means, and my knowledge of any sort of symbology is sparse, so I can only guess that this is some sort of reference to a seal of some sort based on my memories at that time. The lawyer had no clue what it was either, and we both wrote it off as being an eccentricity of my grandfather in those years drifting between lucid and crazy. We shook hands, and that was it. As I walked back to my car, I tried the ring on each finger, and it was always too big, like it wasn't meant to actually be worn. So I slipped it in my pocket and went back to the normal routine I have while shopping. An hour later, while I was ringing up my items, my father called me and we talked for a bit about college and how my classes were going. I told him about my psychology test on Tuesday and had an essay due on the Monday for my history class that was already done. And then he did something that he never did since I left to go live with my mother. He invited me over. I figured he was lonely since my sister moved out to go to college in Kennesaw this semester, so I figured, why the hell not? After I took the groceries home, I drove over to my dad's and we caught up on things, him and my stepmother. While we were talking, it got really late and I really didn't feel like driving home in the dark, so they offered to let me stay the night and I took them up on the offer. As I lay in my old room, I had the ring in hand, turning it and looking it over, wishing I had my little Chromebook so that I could research more about this repeating symbol. Without consciously realizing it, I knew the house was silent. Not even the cats were padding around. I slipped the ring back in my pocket, got up, and looked down the third floor stairs. Only the dim lights of the small outlet floor lamps were on. I had the urge of curiosity now, and thankfully, my shoes were still on. Sneaking my way into the workroom, I took the spare back door keys and one of the industrial torches in hand. As I was about to leave, I noticed that Vietnam arrow pistol on the sink. I debated over it for a minute or two before I took it and checked to see if it was fully loaded before heading out. Stealing down the back porch stairs, I went out and down the path towards the farm, using the torch to see with the pistol in hand. I've only fired a pistol once before, and it wasn't this one. The only gun I've shot had been a rifle and a shotgun, and I was only good at the former. Good enough to be a sniper was what I was told, but for some reason the pistol felt right in my hand, like a sword should be for the swordsman, an extension of your arm. This time I tried again to find the spot where the first memory happened, and I know I found it, and so much more. It was as though I was a kid again.
sprawling fields and trees all around me, as far as the eye could see, with nary an end in sight. More hard-packed dirt roads awaited me, and I realized that none of them were roads I knew, despite having growing up in the same farm for many years. Looking up, I saw some stars, but there were countless others. An entirely new sky lay above me. I kept going onward, letting my feet guide me like they had so many years ago. It was maybe 20 minutes later, if the clock on my cell phone could be trusted, that I found the place I was looking for. I wouldn't have found it had it not been for the ridge of bone that I nearly tripped over in the tall grass. It was a ribcage of something. Anyone who had paid attention in seventh grade life science would have told you that. But that something was when I crouched down at about the height I was at the age of four, the exact size as a thing from the first memory. Leaving it, I went over to the split rail fence and looked at the symbols on the posts. I only went to seven of them before I couldn't see the path anymore and backtracked. But I happened to have my little notepad I used for capturing errant thoughts I have during the day. So I sketched them out on the pad. They all seemed to be pieces of the pattern on the ring. But I only had part of the picture. I guessed that if I saw more, it would repeat, just like on the ring. I started heading back and was just about to step over the bones when I heard a howl that had me chilled to the bone and my heart pounding because my body and now my mind recognized that howl all too well. I don't know if I was thinking at all or maybe I was, but I had the pistol out in front, that wrist brace on my left forearm that held the torch in front of me. For all the pounding of my heart, I was still calm and making my way through the path, keeping eyes and ears open. The rustling began again, just like the last two times, coming from behind me only this time. It wasn't waiting for breeze. It was closing in on me, stalking me. I kept moving ahead, muscles tense, ready to spin and fire. My speed was quick, but it was keeping pace, slowly closing in on me. The last vocal thought in my heart was, oh, shit, and I ran. The me of yesterday is in a hell of a lot better shape than four years old or 14 years old me, so I was actually able to keep ahead of it without getting winded. The adrenaline probably helped a little too. This time I had a torch and when I looked back, I shot it behind me. In the proper perspective, anyone not hopped up on drugs or adrenaline would have pooped themselves at the sight of what I can only begin to describe as a werewolf coming after me. It was much bigger than a wolf with longer limbs, but it had the gait of one, running after me on all fours, spittle flying from its mouth. I saw only a glimpse of those glowing red eyes, and I knew that it knew exactly who I was. That only made me sprint harder, following the dirt path the same as ever, my feet blazing the way. I don't know what let me know it was about to happen. Maybe it was intuition, maybe it was magic, maybe it was just pure effing luck but i turned and fired off a shot catching it in the shoulder that already shot in with an arrow 10 years before its teeth were only a foot or so from my face hot breath clouding my glasses and spittle streaking them it spun cut off guard by the shot in midair and hit the ground hard as i kept running 
It got up, but it was nowhere near as quick as before, and I managed to outrun it, pounding up the familiar hill and passing back to the front yard of my childhood home. Looking back once more, I shone the light back where I'd come from to see it standing on its hind legs, pounding at something hard in front of it. This time, I could see shimmering light radiating from where it was hitting whatever was in the way. Like radar pulses on a screen, I turned and walked off. A howl sounded out behind me, letting me know that I had bested this thing not once, but twice now. I snuck back in and set everything back where it had been, looking at the door, putting the torch where I had taken it, and laying the pistol where it had been sitting. Exhausted from whatever the hell I just went through, I snuck back up to my old room, took a shower, and passed out on the bed. I was woken up by the smell of bacon and the sound of my father being pissed about the smell of gunpowder in the house. I made my way down and took a seat at the breakfast bar, making small talk with my stepmother and feeling the gaze of my father on me, scrutinizing my every move. I'm too good at lying to him, though, having done it for so many years, and he finally grabbed his usual things and went out on the farm to work, taking the pistol with him. I spent the rest of the morning with my stepmother, talking about assorted things like my boyfriend, She's the only one at the house right now who I can talk to about it. I stayed there till about noon when I left to head back home. So now we come to this moment. What started as a simple search for what I thought was a dream is very, very real. The symbols on the posts and the ring, all part of both ancient Celtic protection, warding and sealing spells, Whatever chased me, the closest thing I've found is werewolf, but I don't think that thing can change form at all. It's way too comfortable on four legs, and that name just doesn't feel right to me. I know my father's side of the family is Irish, but that's all that's ever been said to me. I know plenty about my mother's side being assorted ethnicities, some of them even gypsies. I don't know what I've gotten pulled into, but up until now, I was fully invested in selling off my part of the land and leaving it behind. I really don't like Georgia, but now I can't tell you what the hell's happened, but I feel like I have to stay here, like I have to deal with this. I don't know what to do about it. I don't even know where to start. My grandfather was clearly mixed up in all of this, and he's been dead for almost 14 years. My father knows, but it's obvious he was passed over for whatever this is and knows the bare basics, if that. I know he's going to get mad about this if I talk to him. Not like we had that good of a relationship to begin with, but it's been hard to even write about this. I do it with shaking fingers. I can't even really make plans. All I ask myself is, what was my grandfather doing? What is all of this? And what am I supposed to do? I don't have a clue. I keep turning this ring over in my hands, hoping that I can get some sort of answer, but there's nothing. Just an old piece of metal. I'm so crazy. And yet, I have no clue what the hell I'm going to do about this. The only thing I do know is 
that I can't walk away from whatever that is that's stalking me and my family. 